Welcome to the Writer's Block, Episode 5, Career Paths, brought to you by Ice Cream Scones. Get the drier, thicker cone you've always wanted with Ice Cream Scones. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Jump. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left this time is... David Avalone. Nice to have you aboard, kids. Uh, also a screenwriter, also a comic book guy and maker of various things. But let's get to our guests. Shall we? <laughs> I'm bringing them in now. Amanda, David, Amanda, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Amanda Dybert. I write comic books and uh, for TV shows. And David? Hi, I'm uh, David Boer. Uh, I spend most of my time admiring um, Ryland's Golden Girls skateboard him. But when I'm not doing that, <laughs> it's amazing. When I'm not doing that, really I uh, write comics and uh, movies. So there we are. Nice. But I'm coming it from an amazing location, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about that. Un uh, a hotel room and an undisclosed location. I'm convinced that you've entered the witness protection program for uh, whatever reason. I'm sure there's an interesting story uh, about it. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get it out of you or not. I can make up whatever you want. <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, you are a writer. And, and it's amazing how much run the Golden Girl skateboard gets. Um, you know, people like the skateboard more than they like me. That's why I sort of hang it behind me. It, uh, it kind Very of raises smart. my my stock about, you know, 25%. But this was, uh, uh, I think, two years ago or three years ago. It was a, a San Diego Comic-Con exclusive. And I was, you know, kind of trapped in the Action Lab booth. And, uh, yeah, and couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't get away to grab it. Funko kind of keeps everything under lock and key anyway. You got to enter a lottery and all that stuff. And, um, you know, short and sweet, I had to, like, knife somebody and then, like, trade a, uh, you know, a, a small fortune to get this thing. But, uh, but I have it now. You knifed an old lady for it, please. That would just be <laughs> An actual golden girl. Yeah. They're too precious. <laughs> he so, jumped yeah, Betty yeah. White in a parking lot. It was ugly. <laughs> but, uh, she kicked I want to <laughs> talk about our, our topic for today, which is the thing that, uh, one of the things that we all, I think, have in common, uh, the four of us. Um, show business does not have a front door. Uh, one of my favorite lines from a, a movie that not enough people have seen uh, called The Way of the Gun is a plan is just a list of things that aren't going to happen. And, everybody uh, has a plan and everybody has a plan until they get hit. Mike Tyson. Yeah, that's another that's another way to look at it. But yes, a plan is a list of things that aren't going to happen. And we all have plans and we all have dreams and we all have things that we're going after. And one of my favorite examples of zigzagging career paths is that when I met Amanda through the comic book world at some convention, I don't remember who introduced us, she looked super familiar to me. And I don't think I did it right away, but I think about a month or a year later, I uh, Googled Amanda and found her on IMDb and discovered that the reason she looks so familiar to me is I first assistant directed a uh, low-budget feature film called A Marine Story, in which she played attractive meth head number one uh, <laughs> in a crack house scene. I actually, I also not, not only did I, right? I mean, wow. I'm not lying. That was, that may not have been the it's actual actually character name. completely true. But it was, you were attractive meth head number one. 
And I don't know if uh, it's attractive, but thank you. I also I also play officers that all the nominees, all these big names. Attractive number five. Attractive <laughs> number one. Yeah. And she wins. You can you can well, look this well, up on the IMDb, by well, the way. Here's here's my question: Were there five attractive methods, or no, 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 there, there were definitely methods, were, and one was, was attractive? It was not a. Okay. It was not a. Um, no, everybody else was kind of a dirtbag. Critical she, nor titular character. Okay. Yeah, she was the she was, and ironically, I also played a sheriff's deputy in that movie. So we were on both sides of the law in that, but. You know, I just think it says so much about the film industry and the comic book industry that we met doing that in 2009. And then something like 2016, I walked past a booth in WonderCon or Long Beach Comic Con or San Diego and introduced myself. And now we know each other and are friends through that. But at some point, I was a first assistant director and she was an actress. And now we both write comic books and write movies and television and all that. And uh, so that's the, to me, that's just a classic example of how not straight a line it is to get to where we are now. Uh, have you ever played an attractive meth head, David? In I a low budget feature? Place, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like a natural thing. That you would have won at some point in your life. He's just a meth head. <laughs> yeah. But how did you how did you come to comic books and what were you doing before? Um, so my day job still is an attorney. Um, so that's that's fun and exciting. Um, I so probably gosh, I want to say it's in, uh, about eight years ago. I was um, went through something called the Professional Program in Screenwriting at UCLA. So it's not an MFA, but it's still sort of an offshoot of that where you can go and you can study. And I studied um, feature writing there, met a lot of people. It's like you said, you know, eight years ago, I met these people, you know, that you, you uh, colleagues who you become friends with. And that led me to my first work for hire job, which was a rewrite job and I did some um, feature writing. And in the process of that, I was sort of percolating ideas, right? And a lot of um, a lot of the comics creators talked about how they got their um, start in uh, you know film and TV and these ideas that you could want to set up in film or TV, but it's just you know it's a little there's a fewer various barriers to entry with comics. And so I had an idea that was percolating around as a movie, and I um, sort of pushed it toward comics. And around the same time, I was going to San Diego Comic-Con. And um, it all sort of culminated in um, meeting the fine folks at Vault Comics before they And I gave them the idea, and they really liked it. And so we developed it as a comic, and, and from there, I've sort of pushed more into comics and in that way, I'm sure we're gonna talk more about it. Um, and now I write, uh, created and write Canto for IDW, a fantasy, all ages fantasy, um, which, you know, hopefully uh, at some point down the road, I will be able to then bring it back through um, the feature TV lens to sort of readapt. So I went from film, comics, 
and then you know, sort of being back in that world. So that's I don't, sort of I, am. I don't think I knew that you were a lawyer for some reason. What, what, what kind of law do you practice? Yeah, my horrible, sour personality didn't get me <laughs> <off>. <laughs> I mean, my, my whole family is lawyers, so I guess maybe I'm a mean to it, but what kind of law do you practice? Um, I work, um, I actually don't practice for private clients. I work in okay. the court system. So okay. I'm able to sort of have the time and energy to do a lot of this other writing that I do. Um, yeah, and so I initially would do my own contracts, but as soon as they got even a tiny bit complex and like leave it to the experts, you know what they say, right? These um these small world these small world stories are are, are really interesting to me. Um, the uh, uh, Avalone, your um your I met Amanda story reminded me of a uh, of a similar story. Um, uh, Sean Lewis, who will um will no doubt be on the podcast sometime soon. Um, and in fact, was in the mainframe Comic Con panel that kind of uh I don't know spawned this whole uh this show this writer's block show. Um, but he writes um. A number of titles for Image Comics right now: uh, Thumbs and Coyotes and uh, um, uh, the Few. Um, anyway, um, I've known him for like twenty years because uh, we um, were roommates at NYU together randomly one summer, like when we were fucking nineteen years old or something like that. Um, uh, you know, he was uh, he was an actor at that point, um, and he was doing a summer at the Stella Adler Conservatory. And I was, uh, uh, you know, just a kind of film school guy who was out there to, um, I was working for Hal Hartley at the time. And we ended up in the same NYU dorm, just randomly became friends. Um, and then cut to several years later. And um, I am uh, kind of pushing, you know, the sort of uh, uh, Sisyphusian rock of my first comic book up the hill. And um I start seeing notifications uh, on Twitter that um, uh, Sean's first book, Saints, is coming out uh, via image, completely just like random lightning strike sort of thing. And so, you know, whatever it was, 17, uh, you know, 16, 17 years later, we both kind of decided to enter this business at the same time and ended up kind of tripping over each other. And then we've been holding hands through this thing the whole uh, the whole time <laughs> since then. So um, small world, you know, and I mean, and that was uh, that was all the way across the country. Yeah. No, that is that is pretty wild. What was the no. what was the uh, path between uh, Meth House Girl and comic books for you, Amanda? I mean, you know, there's a direct line between comic books and meth, as we all know. Um, I, totally, but... totally. <laughs> Most comic books hey, are actually yeah. printed in meth houses, so it totally... I, 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 I have an artist. Uh, I will not uh, say their name. Oh, uh, but um, uh, whom has uh, confessed to me uh, more than once that uh, that they uh, have had to use amphetamines to uh, get the pages done that I needed. So oh my <laughs> don't feel good about it. Uh, so that is a, it is a very funny it is a very funny joke, but it hits a little close to home. Yeah, <laughs> time to loosen up that schedule a little bit on that guy. Yeah, or, yeah. Well, I don't want it. Oh, <laughs> I was not asking anything unreasonable. Anyway. Yeah. I interrupted you. So I apologize. You. No, you're fine. I had kind of the the uh, the flip actually of the whole. I was a screenwriter first. Well, I, I as David has pointed out, I was an actress, but I also I minored in screenwriting. I was uh, writing for like TV shows, and I was also I started dating my now wife, uh, Kat Staggs, who's an illustrator. Oh. 
And we started doing a webcomic together called Hot Mess, which is just, I would tell like embarrassing stories for my life and she would illustrate them. And it was like a weekly comic strip that went out on a um, now defunct female comedy website. Um, but I was also doing um, like YouTube videos for them at the time. So I would do like just funny sketch, whatever things for the site. And um, I did a, a a bit that was basically, it was for Father's Day. It was making fun of the fact that I'm an orphan. Um, and the joke was just that basically I morphed into Batman by the end. So it was just like, it was just like an orphan, dead dad, Batman joke um, that ended up, I guess, kind of going around some of the DC offices. And then yeah. um, an editor who had worked with my wife and was familiar with the web comic and knew I had done a few other like little comic things contacted me, was like, love the video. That was really funny. Would you like to write a Wonder Woman story? It's wild. Wow. <laughs> and, um, and that's the story of how uh, doing a YouTube video led me to my first Wonder Woman comic and Kat illustrated it. And then um, luckily uh, they kept, I was able to continue to do things for DC and then ultimately uh, various other comic book companies as well. But that's, that's the path. But that is, you know, that I love what that illustrates without even intending to illustrate it is there is, there is a world of people whose only goal in life is to write one or another licensed character like Batman, like Wonder Woman. They would never have taken the steps you took to achieve that goal. No one would go, I want to write superhero comics for DC. So here's my plan. My plan <laughs> is sexy web comic with my girlfriend and then a tasteless joke about Batman. Exactly. And that will that will totally get me. I'm going to be writing Wonder Woman by the end of the week. That it that's exactly an illustration of the point I want to make is that you know, it's not it's always about talent and luck and timing and the right person seeing the right thing at the right time. And uh you know, there are there are people out there who have spent their entire lives, childhoods and young adulthoods writing Wonder Woman fan fiction who will never achieve that no matter how hard they try, because that's all they're doing. And, uh, you know, certainly my career is a monument to not traveling in a straight line and doing whatever is handed to you at any given time and hoping that leads to something else. And in the 90s, I tried very hard to be a studio screenwriter of some kind. Uh, and I had taken advantage of by a lot of uh, executives. I got not paid for a lot of drafts. And it went absolutely nowhere. And after I had written comic books for about four years, a production company, I heard through the grapevine, they were looking for a comic book person. And that's how I ended up working for you know, on the Paramount lot on the Red Sonia script. Like my 35 oh, years in Hollywood, screw that, man. Nobody wants to hear about your 35 years making independent films. But you wrote a comic book with a lady in it once. So uh, Red Sonia is for you. And, you know, and I even mumbled under my breath after we had gone through our first, it was all about selling the pitch, which we did. Uh, but after the pitch was sold, I did, you know, I, I did what I'd have to call the, you know, at least morally correct thing and said, you, sh you should call Gail Simone. 
Like as much as I'm great for this and I'll write it as long as you want, you should probably talk to someone who wrote a hundred issues of Red Sonia as well as, you know, the Betty Page guy. Uh, so, you know, there is, it, but it, you, you never, there is absolutely no predicting what door will open for you. And as I said, it's never the front door. I always compare it to uh, Franz Kafka's The Castle. It's like you come to the castle, you've been summoned to the castle for a job, and then the whole book is he literally can't find the front door to knock on and say, I'm, I'm Joseph K., you asked for me. I'm here to do the job you asked me to do. And everybody goes, I, that, I can't help you. Uh, and I think we're all kind of up against that. You know? I feel like, too, Amanda, had you made that video to get DC's attention? Oh, God, no. Yeah. I feel like it would have, they would have known that right away, and it yeah. wouldn't have happened, right? Right. And, and you know, there's other, th you know, it is, you know, I make the joke about it, but also, like, you know, this editor was familiar with things I'd actually written, had seen comics that I'd done, you know, so it is still, there's that, you know, it's the whole cliche of pep preparation meets luck. And all this mm -hmm. stuff. But yeah, if, if that had been the goal, and it wasn't, the goal was really just to like, you know, deal with my pain and suffering through dark humor. <laughs> but you know, it's the, like David, you mentioned um, the person who, who writes the Wonder Woman fanfic. If you are writing that because you love Wonder Woman, that's when the opportunity comes along. If you're writing that because you want the job, it's going to be okay. so obvious everybody looking at that and i feel like i love to hear those stories amanda because it's just you did something that was helping you personally and it was fun and it was just coming from such a genuine place and that right you can see that from i don't even know i haven't even seen the video and i know that you could probably feel that right away and that's right. what i think everybody responds to well and you you were channeling your real human experience into the metaphor of right. batman which is always the best way to, you know, I always argue it's the best way to approach this material. And someone who spent a lifetime writing Wonder Woman fan fiction might not necessarily have anything new to say about Wonder Woman and might be writing about not their personal experience. It's that thing of you're writing about your life, you're writing about your feelings, or you're writing about comic books and movies. And you can kind of always... Some people have made a lot of money writing about comic books and movies and having it turned into other comic books and movies that are just an endless loop of, you know, a feedback loop of culture. But, uh, you know, you want to, everything ends up being autobiography if you're doing your job right. I'm writing someone else's fictionalized autobiography right now. Uh, the Kevin Eastman thing, the drawing blood. The main character is absolutely based on him. And over the course, I'm writing the eighth out of 12 issues right now. And the amount of things that are now my life experiences that are in this comic. And, you know, Kevin doesn't mind because they're universal experiences. Um, you know, and if you write your personal experience at well, it becomes a universal experience. And he doesn't go, well, that never happened to me. And that's not the relationship I have with my brother and, you know, whatever. Uh, but if it's, you know, it's the, it's an expression I've heard a bunch of times, the difference between real and true. Real, who gives a shit? True always wins. You know what I mean? You can show someone something real that doesn't feel true and they hate it. You show them something 
utterly unreal that is nonetheless true and they will love it you know uh i saw the empire strikes back when i was 15 years old and my father was going through a variety of health and career issues and was in a terrible space and i grew up idolizing him and for me the first star wars trilogy is about accepting that your father is a human being that is what those movies are about they're about nothing else that is how they strike me they're real right yeah on a deep level i I associate with Luke Skywalker going, you know, my dad was just a man and things happened to him and he made mistakes and he did good things, he did bad things and everyone's redeemable. And my father did not mass murder the younglings. Like there was no, there's, it's not, it's not a, it's not applicable, applicable in that way. Well, but, he did walk know, around in that black helmet all day though. That he was the, did, he did yeah. that. That's true. He, he, did, he did enjoy space armor. He it was a thing that he liked, but, uh, but you know, we all work out our stuff in a variety of you know, in a variety. Of, I loved what Tom King did with uh, Mister Miracle, partially because true story. I discovered the New Gods around the same time that I discovered that I was Star Wars and all that stuff was going on. My dad, whatever, and I literally personified depression as Dark Side. And when Tom King wrote that book, I was like. Tom King apparently also uh, also personifies depression as dark side. That is a fast. That is a sign of a uh, a symbol that has been well written and that works. If more than one person goes, you know what? I'm going to write about depression and I'm going to call it dark side. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I mean the flip side of it too is uh, all these new writers who are trying to make it. It's that idea that if you don't come from that space, you're gonna, you know, it's you're gonna have a hard time making it, making connections with people, and getting your stories out there. If you're just trying, if if the end goal is success versus telling story, I suppose that's something yeah. I've thought about a lot, a lot, because I feel like writing comics in particular is very much a. Um, it gets very competitive. I see a lot of people just trying to keep up with each other. Like nobody knows where the end destination is, so why are you trying to keep up? But yeah. um, and, and a lot of it is about success. Yeah. And I just think taking jobs and doing work for hire and all those things, do the ones that you have passion about, the characters you want to write, not the characters you feel like you have to write. And I see yeah. that so much. I will say that I think that uh, there is something to be said that I think any writer handed any set of characters, give them a weekend and they will find the personal uh-huh. way into those guys. There are abstracts. I always make the joke that if Joe Quesada called me tomorrow and said, you're taking over the Fantastic Four, my first reaction would be, uh, let me check my schedule. I guess they fight Dr. <laughs> Doom again. Uh, uh. <laughs> I don't, does she still love Submariner? Uh, I'm exhausted by all of it. But eventually, of course, I would reread 100 issues and find something that I wanted to talk about. But in the abstract, man, it's like, you know, I wrote Zorro. And when I was writing Zorro, I made a lot of jokes about how much I didn't want to write Batman. Because Zorro at least had a good attitude about fighting crime and did it with a smile on his lips and wasn't mopey. Um, But I find a way to make Batman laugh, I think. 
<laughs> Has it been your experience, Amanda? Just sort of getting opportunities and yeah, no, I, I, I agree that um, it's kind of it's something that I enjoy. I mean, I like I like doing things that I come up with as well, but um, I actually really enjoy that aspect of it of like, okay, I've got to write these characters. Let me like do a deep dive. Let me see what about them is intriguing. What aspects of them I relate to? What part of them I want to like bring to the forefront or showcase or talk about? And I, I think that's actually kind of the fun is um, there have been times that I've kind of ended up like falling in love with characters I didn't realize that I, I would love or enjoying writing them when I didn't think that I would. And um, I actually now like I kind of I love the opportunity when that happens of like, here, just do something with this. And you're like, okay, it's fun. Great. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've sort of, um, you know, I don't know, blessed in that. I mean, my day job is I get paid to write movies and TV shows. Right. And so, um, so when it comes to the comic stuff, um, you know, every job that comes along, I don't necessarily have to take because, you know, it's not like I'm swimming in offers that I don't take or anything like that. But but my my bandwidth is is thin. So I have to be careful. And I have all these I, I have my stories that I want to tell. And that's what I've kind of stuck to telling. Um, but, yeah, I think Lake Avalonian, and we've talked about this before on this this channel, like there's there's a lot in kind of mainstream comics that wouldn't excite me. I don't want to name specific things because I don't want to alienate anyone. Uh, and, 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 and you know what? I mean, I guess like any of us, I would, um, I would find my truth in, in something, uh, uh, you know, if I had to, uh, um, but um, yeah, the stuff that excites me is, is kind of weird and kind of a little, uh, uh, you know, odd and to the left. It's like, you know, I mean, we, we, I mean, we've all done, you know, dozens, hundreds of these comic podcasts where you go on, you tell your story and, and they ask you the same, you know, whatever they're probably like, 25 questions that get asked and i think every podcaster like picks maybe 15 of them and then just deals them out like a deck of cards right you never know which cards are going to come out of the deck but you get 15 of those and and one of the cards that comes out all the time is like well if you could write any you know whatever marvel character dc character any licensed character what would it be um and you know in the beginning uh you know oh Moon Knight would be pretty cool, or you know, whatever. I'd, I'd try, I'd try and give my, uh, you know, my cans like what I thought they wanted to hear answer. And so finally, I think after a couple of years of doing those things, I had to kind of sit down, drop out of warp, and be like, "What the fuck would I want to write? Like, what is my ideal thing?" Um, and then finally, I think, I think what it clicked with me, um, IDW announced uh, the Cobra Kai comic. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, Johnny Lawrence is my spirit animal. Um, and I think if I was going to write any licensed character, I want to do, I would love to do a Karate Kid story. I think I was born to write a Karate Kid story one way or another. Um, and so it's like that. And, um, and the things I've been close to doing in terms of, uh, of other people's stories, characters, the whole nine yards, I have this, I mean, because of my Hollywood connections, I have, I, I'm, I'm walking this, this weird line. Right. And, um, and, uh, you know, I'll, um, I'll be talking to somebody at universal about film adaptations, you know, movie, taking an old film and moving that in, in, into TV, kind of like they did with Cobra Kai or whatever. There's a lot of that going on right now. And sometimes I'll trip over a conversation like that. But um, I was at one point very close to doing a, uh, uh, a short circuit uh, comic book with, with a company, Johnny Five, um, which would have been spectacular. 
Um, uh, the problem ends up being a lot of the time is that there is not enough of a monetary incentive for a, uh, a film studio. Um, and it, you know, it's, it, it's like anything else. It's like, you're, you're dealing with an executive who is trying to kind of, uh, uh, you know, justify their existence and their $90,000 salary. Right. And so it's like, well, what does it do for me if I spend all this time on this fucking short circuit comic book? Um, the, uh, the, the reason short circuit almost worked is because they are, um, you know, because they're, they are seriously looking at bringing short circuit back to the screen in one way or another. Um, and so that's oh, when something I like this, it. you love it. Come on. <laughs> Shake that, it head. That's the next phone call. We're having this very conversation. You're going to be like, what's my personal way into short circuit? Oh, I'd find it. I'm sure. Probably Fisher I, Stevens would be my guess, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, well, the, the, the Fisher Stevens uh, thing is very problematic because he's, uh, I mean, that, that, okay. uh, um, that, that, that original film does not, uh, does not age well. He's essentially, uh, you know, doing brown face there, which, which, which I don't think any of us want to touch with a, a hundred foot pole. It's, it's, it's very problematic. However, Johnny five, um, uh, you know, not, not quite, uh, uh you know, not quite, uh, uh, Johnny Lawrence to me, but, but, but he's up there, you know, uh, childhood influences, but, um, anyway. Yeah. No, I, the, dreams, Ryan. The, I had a first go round, uh, where I might've ended up writing comic books around 2001, 2002, because I met Joe Quesada at a party didn't actually come of anything, but they asked, you know, he asked me what what Marvel character would you write? And rather than give the answer that I'm supposed to give, I said, Oh, Nick Fury. And you know, I got the cold stare of like, yeah, we don't want to hear that from anyone. We don't want to hear your Nick Fury fit pitch, dude. That is not what anybody wants to make or write or do, but you know. Uh, say like Green Lantern or something. Yeah. Well, yes, that's true. That would that that would conceivably that could conceivably have gone worse, but uh, but yeah, it is funny. I do have a Godfather pitch that I'm hoping someone will get me that license. <laughs> I would do my number one is I, I mean I'm an '80s kid. My number one is Beetlejuice. <clears throat> I have nice. a Beetlejuice pitch and it's ready to go as soon as anybody whispers that there's a comic. Was I there? Was there ever a comic? I'd be shocked that there wasn't one. There was a Saturday morning cartoon. There was the cartoon for sure. Um, I don't, there might've been a comic book, but not the story that I want to tell. So sure. just don't even talk about it anymore. David. It is, it, it also is fascinating to me. You always kind of get like what age someone was by what they're obsessed with. Uh, you know, there's a generation one step younger than me for whom like the Transformers and G.I. Joe are like a huge deal. And I was just a minute the wrong age where I went, those, no, those are terrible. What's wrong with you? Well, so you for know? Beetlejuice, for me, it was, I was like eight years old, I think. And it was oh. the first movie that I remember <clears throat> um, seeing in the movie theater. And just really quickly, my dad was a single dad at that time or basically a single dad, and it was a weeknight, and he comes home from work, and he tells me and my twin brother, um, get ready, we're leaving, which was totally unheard of on a school night. And he mm -hmm. took us through the movies, just the three of us, in a single screen movie theater in my small town in Ohio, and we watched it, and that was the first movie that I ever remember seeing in the actual movie theater. 
So there's your that's, personal connection. Yeah, that's that's huge. I mean, I'm a lifelong James Bond fan, and one of the when I was eight, my father took and this boy does this date me. When I was eight, my father just took me to see a double feature of Diamonds Are Forever and You Only Live Twice on my birthday with my best friend, and I've never forgotten it. I they are when people say what's your favorite Bond movie, I say they're two not very good movies, and I love them more than any other movie. So shut up right away. Right. Like, don't even don't even bother telling me those are bad movies because mm-hmm. fuck you, those are great movies. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have a, I have a standing arrangement with Amanda's wife to do a James Bond comic together someday if I can get Dynamite to let me take over that. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, but even that, it's like Dynamite's had James Bond for a couple of years, and every time I try to think of a pitch, I'm like, yeah, they're not going to go for that. <laughs> you know, like the James Bond comic I want to write. Uh, I, I, I actually pitched one where uh, Bond finds out that the royal family had Princess Diana killed. Amazing. Oh Incredible. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> I don't <laughs> think Eon Productions is going to go after go. Yeah, it's basically it's set around the time Diana is killed. MI6 goes to the prime minister and says, we're going to investigate this. And the prime minister says, you know, we're going to let the French police investigate this. And M invest M sends Bond and he finds out another double O killed Princess Diana. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, yeah, no, (laughs) we we're not we're not doing that with our licensed character. But thank you so much. I, I, I believe I, I believe I moderated the panel at the Long Beach Comic Con where you and Kat made that agreement. So uh, oh yeah, thank me. In the, uh, I, I think that did come up at a panel. That's right. Yeah, thank Amanda, me in what, the uh, in the credits. What's your passion project? I don't. I mean, God, I don't know. There's a there's a lot of creator owned stuff I want to do. Um, uh, you know, like I'm more into the idea of say like. I mean, like, I'm also a, a very big James Bond fan, lifelong, hardcore. But, like, in my mind, I'd rather do something where, like, James Bond is a woman and a lesbian, and it's that kind of a thing. By the um, way, there is a Cat Stags, Sean Connery, James Bond. Love it. Drawn for me nice at Long Beach Comic Con, I believe. Nice. She did a she did a pussy galore for me. Nice. That I have. <laughs> nice. Um, Love that. But, yeah. Have you done creative? Right, um, I... A, I, a little bit, but not, but not much. I was going to say nostalgically, like right now, um, I'm actually working on the, this is like screenwriting wise, but um, I'm working on the, the reboot of He-Man for Netflix. So like that kind of touches in on like the, like being an eighties kid and uh, getting to, getting to do that is, has been now is fun. Is that an animated thing? Or is that a live action thing? Yes. Anime, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's animated. There's two. So there's the Kevin Smith one. That's not the one I'm on. Okay. And then there's and then there's one that is uh, more geared to so like the Kevin Smith one is like more for like us, like for people that grew up with the '80s cartoon and are now adults. Right. Um, whereas the one that I'm writing on is uh, is actually for kids now. So it's a it's a new reboot of of He Man, um, and that's literally oh, all I can say about it. <laughs> I had a God. I was just going to say, style wise, is it is it styled for like the 12, 10, 11, 12 year old kids? Is it more 
Yeah, it's more, it's not like, it. it's not retro. Like, it's not, it's not what we knew of as. Is it stylistically in the same ballpark as the She-Ra reboot? Um, it's not exactly the same because they're actually not linked at all. Um, hmm. Which is interesting, but I, I think that has something to do with like DreamWorks versus Mattel or something. You know, like it's it's a business situation. Sure. Um, but so it's like in ways, I guess, kind of, but not really. There's nothing. The art doesn't look the same. They're not sure. in the same like world. It's it's pretty different. What stage is it at right now? Um, we have finished all the scripts for season one. Um, I have seen. And we've done we've done voiceover for a lot of it, and I've seen animatics for a few of my a couple of my episodes. Um, oh, fun! So like it's it's coming along, but animation is slow. It's really oh, yeah. slow. <laughs> well, you can do it right now. That's the thing. We're all well. So down. that's been yeah. That's actually been really cool because um, uh, because the it's all been like Zoom VO. So my daughter's been able to sit with me and actually like watch and listen wow. while they're like doing the voices, which is, and you know, it's people that she's also like recognizes from other cartoons and whatever. So like, it's been so fun for her, which is- How old is she? She's five. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And she is literally the most adorable creature on God's green earth. I mean, I'm not gonna argue there. Yeah, no, she is. <laughs> I've met best, her. But yes. She is, she's, she's crazy adorable. One of the main reasons to visit your booth at any convention is to see see little Viv, see her napping, see her playing. <laughs> yep, she's a she's a she's a very social creature. <laughs> I was I, I was looking off camera here for a minute. I was not trying to be rude, but I was looking for my program. I was uh, I, I had very serious discussions for a, a period of time not too long ago about a um, a reboot of the live action uh, He Man uh, arena show. Oh um, wow! Yeah, that they were talking about, you know, because there was a um, uh, there was a, a film in development uh, with mm -hmm. Goyer who was going to do it, I think. Um, and so uh, there was a company that was toying with the idea of actually rebooting the uh, the arena show uh, that you know I actually attended. I think when mm -hmm. I was probably four, four years old, uh, you know, and got a big now, was plastic. That, uh, was the arena show at a? at an amusement park or was it a stand No, 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 it it, it, it it traveled around. So you would go to like the basketball arena in your big city and uh, and you would right. go there and it was, it was the He-Man power tour. Skeletor would come out. He-Man on lights and Yeah, it, so it, was basically, it was basically a touring medieval times, but with Eternia. Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh and, and without the beer, yeah. I wanna, you described it in a way that I wanna go watch it right now, same, same. I would go. <laughs> pandemic aside. Yeah, it's it, it's why I was I was I was really hoping I could find my program here. I may just may take a second to try and find it because like the if you look it up online, like the um uh the costumes and everything are so cheesy and so awful. I mean, it's just like you know, I mean, the He-Man outfit is not uh you know, it is not um I don't know what you call it, but it's it's it is very humorous, like like for for a number of reasons, and it's just you know it, it's 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 you know, guys and gals walking around in really bad '80s approximations of these cartoon uniforms, um, and uh, and you know, and it plays like a medieval time show. It was it was? I mean, when I was four, I was enthralled. It was the greatest thing I'd ever seen I, in my life, particularly because, yeah. I think they if they do re, if they do it now or in the future, yeah. they should have the '80s costumes. 
They should yeah, recreate yeah. it 100% what it was like back in the 80s. You will get everybody. Well, if I had I, anything to do with it. <laughs> I really think that, you know, in 20 years, everyone's going to be just as embarrassed by the late 90s, early aughts, gritty superhero costumes, because those are looking pretty foolish. Uh, I mean, even on the the boys kind of satirizes that, and the costumes yeah. on the boys, you're like, man, this these are dumb. <laughs> these are dumb, gritty, you know, color desaturated costumes. It's it's just a different dumb style. And I kind of love that on the new Star Trek, like they've come all the way around to no, you know, maybe they should just wear the costumes they wore in the '60s, which were pretty great. <laughs> Like, yeah. we tried to make them gritty and monochrome for a while, and, you know, the gold pajamas were pretty sweet. Let's yeah. let's maybe throw Anson Mountain in gold, gold pajamas and black booties and uh, make a new TV show. It's going to be fantastic. Star Trek took it way too far because it was like, you know, how many how many goddamn uniforms did Captain Picard wear over the course of like, you know, I mean, we, we, we watched him for we watched him for about twenty years. Every, every time they fucking had a Star Trek brain fart, they threw a new costume on him. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It, like, it, the, the Federation is the most yeah. fashion conscious yeah. paramilitary organization <laughs> in history. They, they changed like, everything. American soldiers, you know? American soldiers wore the same uniform from World War yeah. II to after Vietnam. Like it was yeah. literally 1980 when we changed the World War to the 1945 costume got changed in 1980. The Federation yeah. every five years is like, how about something that crosses? Yeah. Could we, could we belt it? I think it should yeah. be belted next time. It's like we gotta change it, the pin this time. Change the pin. <laughs> you know, on full Moira Rose with him and oh, just him yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah, that was there was one. Uniform? There was, let's change the wig. There was a, <laughs> that one episode of Deep Space Nine where they went back to the '60s, uh, yeah. and it had a, it had such a great little piece of writing for my money, where uh, Jadzia Dax, who was alive at that time, basically said that the Captain Kirk era was a '60s revival period which I just thought was the funniest. She's like, oh, the 2260s mini skirts and bouffant hairdo. It's like, oh, so the Federation literally had like a 60s craze. And that nice. explains the go-go boots and the mini skirts on everybody, you know? But I think that, sure, why not? We, it's, it happens now. Why wouldn't it happen again in 300 years that people would do yeah, yeah. absolutely ridiculous 1960s hairstyles, you know? That's really um, good. Yeah. I'm on board. To completely change the subject, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the Al Gore thing that you do, Amanda, because oh, I think sure. not enough people know about that, and it is wild, and it is, once again, a complete left turn career-wise from everything else that we all do. Mm -hmm. Um. So, I obviously, uh, not this year, but uh, for four years in a row, I was the writer for former Vice President Al Gore's 24 Hours of Reality, which is a, it's live for 24 hours. It's a global broadcast about like the climate crisis and it's with world leaders and, you know, and celebrities and musicians and climate activists and whatever. And uh, the, the idea basically is that we're live in prime time for an hour in different parts of the world like as we as we go to it in real time, but then there's also like the whole broadcast is streamed live online, so people can you know watch the whole 24 hour broadcast, or they can watch like the televised 
hour to block in whatever nation. And so we always have like a, we have a hub wherever we, we are, are filming that year, but then we also have satellite hubs with hosts um, all over the world that we can like throw to and it gets translated. Parts of the scripts get translated into all the different languages um, for that. But I write the whole, it's like a 520 page script. Um, and I write and that. Wow. <laughs> and you, how long are you, how long before the, the event do you write it? Do you want to know that the whole thing from beginning to end for me is five weeks? Wow. Oh, God. Um, and the last week is like us being like on location and then I'm basically, and then I'm, um, I'm live in the control room for the whole broadcast because like if something changes or happens, I have to be able to on the fly change it. So the executive producer and I, everybody else kind of does shifts, but the executive producer and I, um, and, and vice president Gore, actually, he's, he's up the whole time. We stay up the whole time, stay in the control room and it's about 36 hours all together with, cause we do some pre-taped interviews and some sat hits and stuff. Um, and so that's just, it's just PAs bringing me coffee. Wow. Amazing. That's amazing. And how did the, the, in terms of what we're talking about today, how did that end up on your plate? Like how the hell did that ever, where, where was that help wanted ad? <laughs> God. So I was, uh, I was writing on a late night show on the now defunct uh, network pivot that uh, participant media had for a while. And it was very political and uh, in, in nature. And uh, our executive producer of that show is one of the executive producers for 24 Hours of Reality, or was at the time he's passed away since. Um, and uh, they had had a writer for the couple years before when they had started from Colbert, and she was no longer available. And so my EP was like, oh, Amanda can do it. It'll be great. And I was like, sure. And then I did. <laughs> I'm just kind of amazed that that's not something they hire five people to do, that it's something that yeah. they put on one person is kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, for all sorts of, not just budget, but just for, you know, that it takes 10 people in a room to write 22 minutes of a sitcom, but you for 500 pages of environmental political chat is kind of hilarious. Uh, so you know. So you, you, you said you've done it more than once, right? Because that's what surprises me is that you did it right. one time and then you signed up to do it again <laughs> because I think like I would have jumped out a window. Uh, maybe, I don't know, you said 36 hours. That might've lasted 20, 21 hours. And then I probably would have went out the window and you wouldn't have seen me again. <laughs> well, so what's crazy is actually the first year that I did it, um, there was an ISIS attack in the middle of it. Oh, so wow. So, so it's weird to say that I love this job because I do, but the first year that I did it was in 2015 and we went to Paris uh, because it was right before the Paris Agreement. So it was All like right. to, to ramp up for the Paris Agreement. So we were at that. We were live at the base of the Eiffel Tower and we had like Duran Duran opened for us. And so like they were there and then like Kofi Annan came. So this is before he passed. And then, um, we had some mayors of Paris, some of President Obama's advisors, and then President Hollande was going to come be on the show. So we were, we were live, but it was, um, it was November thirteenth of twenty fifteen, which is when all those attacks happened all over Paris at the Bataclan, and it 
several other places. And then we had to stay live uh, through part of it because um, we couldn't have Vice President Gore making a statement before President Hollande made a statement from, from Paris. Um, but we were also a little bit concerned that we'd be a target because we had world leaders and because we were at sure. the base of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, and well. So President Hollande sent some military. And um, it was a very crazy time to stay live. It's now my, like, in job interviews when people are like, oh, this job is really stressful. So, like, do you think you can handle it? <laughs> then I'm like, I have stayed live in a control room in the middle of an exit Wow. Um, and then it's like, okay, yeah, you probably are going to be. Isn't that funny? It, it always cracks me up. I used to say this a lot when I was an assistant director and people would come to me screaming or crying or what, you know, they would say the PA is an hour late. I'm like, oh my God, are they carrying the cure to cancer in their car? And they'd go, well, no. I'm like, then I guess I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, I, I guess I'm not going to get as upset as you are because Jesus Christ, man, we're making a movie. PA is an hour late. You know, what do you, you know, like, what, how could you possibly get that stressed out? I had a, I was on the way to set once uh, of an, <laughs> a kickboxing movie that I was directing and my car exploded. Uh, the radiator tank exploded in my face. Um, oh my God. I got second degree burns on my face. Uh, stumble. This one, this is like what I, I have what I call action hero luck where the car explodes on me. I was in the middle of literally nowhere, but there was a fire station half a block from me. So I literally gave the paramedics their only walk-in business they've ever had. I walked in holding my hands like, hi, I've been horribly burned in an explosion if you could uh, give me a hand with this. But the great thing about that experience is, man, your crew does not complain about anything when you show up with your face bandaged and say, Okay, now we're gonna do a. Tw I'm gonna do a 12-hour day with second-degree burns on my face, popping Tylenol. Uh, you're you're all gonna be okay with that. Like no one complained for the next six days because they were like, right, your car blew up in your face. It really horrible experiences. I always say there's a, the, the greatness to them is the perspective that they give you. So for the that, next five you came to set with a bandage of pain. Yeah, right. I, sh I should just lie and say, oh, it was a horribly disfiguring accident on the way to the... There's uh, a little wrong with the Benji's face again. There was a... I, I had a... My GP at the time, the, the, I, the first time I went to see him was for a regular appointment. The second time I went to see him, I had been stabbed. The third time I went to see him, my car Jesus. exploded. This the is fourth time I went to see him, I had a nagging cough, and he was so disappointed. He was like, I saw your name on the chart. And I was like, oh, he fell out of building. He's been shot. Some other amazing thing has happened. I'm like, I got a nagging cough. He's like, really? I was hoping for a really great story. You always have such a great story. And now it's an it's a nagging cough. Who gives? Yeah, see, this is what Avalone does, particularly on this show, is that he'll just be talking 90 miles an hour and be like, yeah, and then I got stabbed. And, and, then, and then he just goes on and on and on and on. You know, and, and 15 minutes later, you know, you're finally like, dude, but. It's a uh, long story. Yeah. Yeah. Got you know, it was. <laughs> my, my, I will say this about my stabbing. It ended up as a punchline on an episode of Seinfeld. And that is a true story. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I had a. This is the point in the pod when we know you're making up stuff because the cat came into frame. <laughs> yeah. I, I got the production value of the cat. No, I was. I, I was stabbed. Lying. 
the afternoon that I had a blind date and I didn't have a cell phone at the time and I had to call the restaurant from the hospital and say, could you find Sally, a brunette named Sally waiting alone at a table? Tell her David's been stabbed and I'll call her at work tomorrow. I'm fine. That happens to Elaine in an episode of Seinfeld because Sally told the story to a bunch of, she was at a party with a bunch of sitcom writers who asked, what's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you on a date? And I was like, and you told sitcom writers, the, f and you expected nothing to come of that. It's, you're funny. It's like, they were, they were just using you guys as a writer's room for the cost of a bowl of chips. Did you go out with her again? I did, I did eventually go out with her. Okay, good. It would See, have been a great, if we had gotten along, it would have been a great story to tell grandchildren, but it didn't turn into a relationship. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm, I'm much faster than Avalone, and so I just have, I have a couple of I almost got stabbed stories, but they're not as good. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> uh, you know, as, as Ian Fleming said, it reads better than it lives. Of course. <laughs> being being stabbed, being stabbed by my, no, the other, another, I was friends with Robert Block, the author of Psycho. I met him through, my dad was a colleague of his. And when I first moved to LA in 1987, uh, we became pretty close, took him, you know, went to lunch, whatever. He was a very welcoming friend. And he had died about three days before, not three days, about a month before I got stabbed by a psychopath. And in the, I swear to God, my first thought in the ambulance was, Bob would have really appreciated this. <laughs> like of all the people in the world I could have told this story to, I could have told this story to Bob and he would have loved it. <laughs> It would have been handled a little differently than how they handled it on Seinfeld, probably. Yes, yes. <laughs> Bob would have, Bob would have done something different with it. But, uh, but yeah, he was he was a great guy. He's the originator of the joke, uh, which uh, Stephen King used to rip off. Of uh, he was a very funny, very sweet guy, and he'd say, "People, because I wrote Psycho, people always expect me to be some kind of monster, but I have the heart of a three-year-old boy in a jar on my desk." <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah, Stephen King used to tell that for like a decade until someone finally said, "Will you stop telling Robert Block's joke?" And he, <laughs> and he stopped, which was nice. But uh, but no, I was curious about the Al Gore thing because uh, I just thought that sounded like such a fascinating, high pressure gig and and fun, you know. I, I love it. I do. It's, I mean, it is high pressure and it is really stressful and it's like the most intense thing that I do out of anything that I do. But, um, that's what I kind of like about it. You know, it's like doing like a marathon or something, you know, it's like yeah. you couldn't do it all the time. It wouldn't be like, like a year long job that you could have, but like, it's, it's fun to have like a really intense five weeks. And are we hoping in a post pandemic year to do it again or Is that is it going to be done again in the future? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, it's just you know, like right now, everything in the world is in such a yeah a weird space. So we'll see. I worked a twenty-four hour day as a grip on the Aerosmith music video "Love in an Elevator." Oh my god! Incredible. That's awesome. And it was long enough ago that it was like. They offered me a flat rate, and I said yes. Oh, and no. at 24 hours, we were still shooting. And I walked Amazing. up to the production coordinator oh, and God. said, I'm going home now. And they said, no, you got to stick around. I said, look, I was dumb enough to offer you a flat, late, a flat rate, but it's a day rate. And here on the earth, a day is a 24-hour period. 
And uh, if we were on Jupiter, you'd have me for a couple of weeks, but you know, for like 700 hours, but here on the earth, a day only gets you 24 hours. Um, oh and God. that was an insane, insane gig. But, and that was, the first, that was the first time someone said, you won't work in this town again to me. And they called me three <laughs> days later to work on the rap crew. Was it, was like, wow, that only, only three days? Like, should I have gotten that notarized when you made that, Brett? Should I have had you write it down? Oh, my God. This idiot will work for 24 hours straight. Hire him. Exactly. <laughs> Am I wrong, or was Love in an Elevator directed by Stormy Daniels? No. Stormy Daniels no? was, like, 10 when that music video was. No, the Love in the Elevator music oh. video was by a guy named Marty Callner. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, she 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 directed a film called Love in an Elevator. I was uh, oh. somebody told me. Okay, that that makes, that makes total sense. Sorry, right, right, yeah. complete brain fart by me. Okay, <laughs> yeah, right. no, the, I, I'm Marty just I'm looking at a, a whole bunch of those. Like I also okay. worked on the on the share battleship music video. Uh, oh, awesome. nice. Uh, turn turn back time. Yeah, if I could turn back time, and because I'm yeah. straight. I didn't, it had not occurred to me that she wore a wig. And I was walking by her trailer. Even when and you were someone was cannon, like holding her up as she's sitting there, just didn't yeah. occur to you? <laughs> yeah. No, but she, she, someone came out of her trailer holding what I thought was Cher's severed head. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I had a moment and I went, oh, right. Of, of course that's a wig. What are you, an idiot? That's Incredible. not any human being's hair ever, uh, but it was a wild. Uh, that was a that was a, a fairly wild, ridiculous experience shooting on board uh, an active duty uh, U.S. Navy vessel with a bunch of horny sailors and share. In the center. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who is a horny sailor in her own right? I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, it sounds like the uh, yeah the opening of a like '90s Steven Seagal movie or something like that. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it was. Yeah. No, the wild thing is again that that one was like a couple of, like a month or two before the Persian Gulf, the first Persian Gulf War, and that ship was over there firing cruise missiles at Iraq. The one the the music video set I had just been on. Was firing cruise missiles at Iraq, which was uh, which was quite an experience. But don't don't be like me, kids at home. Get a real job, Jesus. It's uh, it's exhausting. <laughs> this has all been very exhausting. Amanda, are there any what what were your aside from attractive meth house girl? What are there any other acting parts that you remember that were significant? Um. I mean, like fun things. Sure, I, I I did some like you know some Nickelodeon shows. I did I did um, the last thing that I did was when I was uh, barely pregnant um, with my daughter. I was in like a a low budget horror film called Helltown, um, which was really fun and is available on Amazon. So it's very like Halloween appropriate. But I mean, I did I did a smattering of TV, a smattering of indie films. It was fun. Is it something that you still want to do? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I I miss acting sometimes, but it's like it feels like such another lifetime now. Um, I've gone like so far into like the writer space, which is a life that I like in a lot of ways. Uh, there's a lot about the acting life of like 
going to auditions all the time and like just that kind of grind that I, that I don't miss. Um, oh, absolutely. No, no, I, I think well. the, the thing that makes me a writer made me reject, I did a little acting as well. And the thing that made me, re the hardest thing in the world is bad dialogue and bad direction. Like any other part of the filmmaking process, as in I was an editor and I happily polished other people's turds for decades, but standing on set in front of a camera, having to say dumb shit and perform idiotic behaviors, that is a painful, my favorite bad directing I ever got. I was doing this music video that was a homage to silent films. And the director told me from the beginning, Buster Keaton, I want you to do it just like Buster Keaton. So I did, I did a very deadpan, flat face, you know, stone cold reaction to everything. And he kept saying to me, no, give me more energy, give me more enthusiasm. And I was like, and at lunch, I was looking at my costume and my straw hat and my glasses and I went, do you mean Harold Lloyd? <laughs> and he went, "Is who's the guy hanging off the clock? Oh I said, God. that's Harold Lloyd. And he went, oh yeah, that's who I meant. And I was like, <laughs> well, that's a completely different thing. That's a very, that's a very, okay. It's like, oh, did I say Marlon Brando? I meant Olivier. Sorry. <laughs> Slight difference in those two styles. I thought you were going to say your, your acting career ended when the radiator exploded into your face. No. Strangely yeah. enough. That Hor it horribly disfigured. It gave me a weird uh, hairline. But aside from that, there was no other... Uh, no other long-term ill effects. I was very, when the, when the doctor cut the bandages off my head, he just started laughing. He was like, you ought to, he was rushing. He was like, you ought to luck his son of a bitch. <laughs> like, I was sitting there going, I'm going to be wearing baseball caps for the rest of my life. Cool. Whatever, whatever it takes. God. And he was like, I, uh, no. I played a dead body on CSI one time. Uh, nice. Easiest day of work I ever had. Uh, as amazing. long as you don't, as long as you don't mind being elbowed by uh, a co-star, uh, being like, "Yeah, you're snoring again. You're snoring again." Um, yeah, it was. Uh, um, you know, I didn't sleep much uh, the night before. I was up late, and uh, I I caught up that day. It was very nice. <laughs> Just nice. hey, you lay on that table. <laughs> so, David, would you stop lawyering if you could? Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. In a heartbeat, I will. I will. Yeah. You know, it's it's such a nice thing to have because, yeah. you know, <clears throat> I get I get uh, people asking me questions and things like that, and I generally, you know, I want to be you know generous with my time, and so questions and referrals and that sort of thing, and so I feel very fortunate that I have that background that I can do that, um, but I don't want to. I don't want to be practicing. I want to have somebody who's doing, I want to have people for that. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I, I, I would have, I, I have an exit strategy and when it comes to pass, we will, we'll see, but yeah. No, cause it's, I mean, anyone who works professionally in comic books knows that as a sole source of income, Yikes. It's, it's a tough one. I am very lucky to have a partner who has uh, health insurance or I would be a dead man, <laughs> literally a, de a homeless dead man. 
uh, a, mm -hmm. a combo platter, um, you know, and for years, uh, film editing was sort of my, the thing that I, that was my go-to background, but I decided about a year and a half ago that it was mostly getting in the way of me pursuing writing jobs. Like the time that would have gone into me looking for new and better stuff and working on my own stuff and doing Kickstarters, all that was going into editing movies I didn't care much about. And then the last editing job I had was literally like when I was a friend of mine and he offered me the job and my wife was like, you know, this is that thing in the heist movie where you're telling me there's just one last job and it's going to set us up and you know it ends with you dead on a bank floor in Mexico. You know that, the, you know, we're headed towards you on a dead on a bank floor in Mexico. And I was like, I hope not. But, and I totally ended up dead on a bank floor in Mexico. It was, <laughs> they ran out of money in the middle of post. I had to hold the footage oh hostage. God. It became like every nightmare movie. I eventually took my name off it. It became like every nightmare movie you've ever worked on. And it wasn't, it wasn't my friend's fault. He had a shitty producer working uh, with him but it was just one of those funny and it was that classic thing of a guy 20 years younger than me saying oh this happens in indie films all the time i'm like i'm 55 i've been working on indie films since i was 22 and this is the first time i've had to hold footage hostage to get a paycheck so no if this is happening to you all the time that's a you problem not an independent <laughs> film problem oh my god uh, maybe it's it's changed too you know i used to think balancing um, different different career paths with writing and, and doing other things. Um, when when I was commuting before the pandemic, it was time was really precious. And now that we are all at home, there's a lot more time to do more things. And so that calculus that you talk about is when do you leave your day job and when do you when do you write full time and those sorts of things. That shifted a lot even oh, since the pandemic. So interesting. A lot of things have have changed. I don't have to, you know, g going doing the water bottle tour and all these things of of, of in um, Hollywood and eight production companies and all these things. It's all Zoom calls. Yeah, do all the Zoom calls. I don't have to do any of the traveling, any of the the meetings. So I have a whole lot more time to devote to writing, and I think that's what's um, helped quite a bit. If there is a silver lining to the many calamities that were dealing yeah. with. Well, and I, I do think, I do think there's a possibility for a long-term societal adjustment because I think we've all learned that a lot of stuff that we assumed had to be done in person really doesn't need to be done in person anymore. And I think there's going to be more, I mean, I, as long ago as 20 years, I used that logic. I was working for a producer out of my home edit bay and they wanted me to edit in Brentwood, which for me is, I had at the time a 30-year-old car. It was an hour each direction because of the traffic streams. And I said, well, I'm going to charge, you're paying me X amount of dollars a day for working at home. I'm going to have to charge you Y, which was a much higher number. And they were like, well, why? I was like, the two hours I'm in the car, I could be editing your show. Instead, you want me killing my old car, sitting dead stopped on the 405, accomplishing nothing for anyone but wearing out my carburetor and my brakes. Uh, how about you pay me a little less uh, and I just keep doing this in my living room? And they're like, ah, you're making an excellent point. 
you know. Everything on the other side of this is going to change. Don't you agree, Amanda, with like writer's rooms and that sort of thing? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, it's, I'm also uh, like, I'm working on like a Quibi show right now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm not on set, like, because they keep the set really locked down. And so like, suddenly my whole job is at home, um, which it does, you know, there, there are all the time that I would be in my car or commuting, I can now like, get that done. I mean, for me, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because I have a child. So I'm also helping to facilitate virtual kindergarten. Yeah. So now I am a part-time kindergarten teacher while I work. <laughs> um, so that part is, that part is harder. Um, that part is, uh, you know, takes hours from my day. But in general, I think we will get rid of a lot of like the, the, bullshit stuff that we don't actually need to be in the room for. Like I'm hoping it means like less meetings in our life, less commuting in our life, less yeah. Yeah. all that time waster. Yeah. I really, I really hope it sticks. I would love to, um, you know, I mean, just uh, the way LA works. I mean, I could, uh, you know, what would you pay for, you know, rent your house, whatever. I mean, we, we could sell our house here. Um, you know, with the equity we have in it, go uh, go buy a house five times the size, <laughs> pay cash, and still still have money to live off of. You know, yeah. uh, wouldn't have earthquakes, wouldn't have wildfires, wouldn't have. Uh, I would love to. Um, I mean, for 15 years uh, working in Hollywood, I've uh, I have operated under the uh, you know the assumption, uh, you know, the rule that uh, you sort of had to be here to do this. Um, I think we've proven that you don't have to be here to do this. Um, I hope that it stays that way because I would love to, uh, I don't know, abscond to uh, Austin or Portland or, you know, God, anywhere else right now. Maybe fucking Alaska, you know, <laughs> just yeah. unplug. <laughs> I, I, I do. I do love L.A. and I love I love it here. And I, I would probably stick here. And, you know, barring a uh, barring maybe the right verb. Barring a, uh, a mistake of history on November 3rd, I'll be staying in the United States um, and in Los Angeles. Uh, otherwise, uh, New Zealand looks pretty nice. <laughs> they seem to know how to handle it. They will not let you in, I promise. Yeah, there is that. No, nobody wants us. That's the yeah. problem. <laughs> there is that. My, my wife and I may have to find a nice pair of, uh, of Kiwis to marry. Um <laughs> get ourselves into the country but all kidding aside i i do love it here i just you know i like i like not having to do as much of the, i mean look i was working at home 90 percent of the time before this happened so it hasn't been a giant change for me and you know rylan and i have talked about this before i love the global nature of the comic book industry even more so than the film industry i'm working on a project now with a great artist named sylvia califano i've never heard her voice i've never been in the same room with her barring a vacation in rome i will not be in the same room with her anytime soon uh but she's a tremendous collaborator and i'm enjoying working with her even in the united states dave acosta is in dearborn michigan he's drawn 50 percent of the comics i've written Never met the man, <laughs> you know, like we've talked on the phone a hundred times. We, I am each other several times a day, uh, but that global outreach uh, for the art form is kind of the beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that, you know, LA's culture tends to be a little monolithic in the United States of America, but there's, there's a lot to be said that the visual style of something I'm writing is being influenced by someone whose day is, the sights and sounds of Rome, 
and someone whose day is the sights and sounds of Dearborn, Michigan, mm -hmm. and someone whose day is the sights and sounds of a small town in rural Maine. Like it's a different, I actually wrote an, an issue of Drawing Blood that takes place in uh, Maine and Ben Bishop was thrilled out of his mind. He's like, I can just look out the window. Um, you know, as opposed to making people draw Hollywood landmarks all the time. Um, but uh, is there is there anything aside from maybe being a, a kindergarten teacher that you would like to leave behind in your career, Amanda, or anything that you want to do more of? Um. Oh, I don't know. Um. I I kind of I like the fact that my that I do kind of that I am all over the place. Like that's actually very appealing to me because then I don't totally. get more things. Like I like the fact that I'll work on a horror comic and then a YA comic and then an animated show and then a you know something about the climate crisis and then something about sex. Like, um. So I don't know that I'd want to give anything up. I uh, I'd love to write a feature film that actually got produced. Like that would be. That's not something I've done. I've I've written some. I haven't had any made. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. that's kind of it. No, that and that's a that is, Rylan and I've also talked about this before. But there's something that I used to call the, uh, the the successful screenwriter's disease, which is you drop out of it not because you're unsuccessful, but because you can't uh, you can't answer what I call the cocktail party question. You can oh. you have a million dollar home, you live high on the hog, you have a great wonderful life, and every party you go to, someone says to you. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a, I'm a successful Hollywood screenwriter. Oh, what of yours have I seen? <laughs> Jack shit is what you've seen. I have written a million drafts, been paid crazy great money for it. I know, I know people that have scattered to the four winds of the world and every career you can possibly imagine, including comic book writer, partially because of that. And I'll say, as a, you know, as a little bit of a button to all the things I've said comic books of everything that I've ever done. I have creative freedom. I mm -hmm. have never even approached the edge of in film and television. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and again, is that that's partially because I've worked for dynamite, which is tiny. And I say this with love. They don't care. You like you, you, you gave 20 pages an artist can draw. They're drawing them. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. They, you know, like, they're like, we're too busy to give you notes. You're you you're the writer. You write a comic book, um, which is a fan. It's it reminds me of like low budget movie studios in the fifties, where it's like, no, you're the you're the artist. You do the art. We'll sell the thing when it's done, but we don't have the time, energy to micromanage you. And how wonderful is that after working in Hollywood? When I handed in my first script, I waited my very first ever comic book script. Uh, a week went by and I called up a colleague who was working for the same company. I was like, I haven't heard anything. I guess Joe hates my script. And they were like, dude, someone's already halfway done drawing it. Are you kidding me? Like you, you expected to hear something you wanted praise, forget it. Like they're, they're just, they're on to the next, they're waiting for your next script already. I was like, Oh, mm -hmm. that is a, that is definitely not what I have experienced in Run film. Tight monkey tight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Plush out the and and there's a this one other thing, and we've talked about this before. The discipline that the speed, the sheer speed of comic books, especially a monthly book, 
man, that changes you as a writer like nobody's business. Like I think about the years I spent when I wasn't employed as a writer, not writing a spec script and thinking about what idea shall I work on and what you, and all of that nonsense. And now it's like mm, 10 pages by Friday. <laughs> gotta be something, gotta be something on them. Gotta be something on those pages, man. And I don't think it, I don't know that the speed makes it suffer. The speed makes you work faster. I agree. I don't know that it, I don't feel like it's made me lazy. I don't think like it's made me, I don't feel like it's made me sloppy. It's made me more that like, instead of the old days where you write a half a scene and you hit a speed bump and you go, oh, I'm going to check Twitter for a little while. I'm going to have some lunch, uh, watch a TV show. It's like problem must be solved. <laughs> problem must be solved. Now, Dave Acosta is sitting in Dearborn with a pen in his hand, ready to draw some shit. Um, he needs, and I, and I, it's one of the things that I like about it also, it's the pressure of like, someone else making their living and paying their mortgage depends on me giving them something to draw. Uh, and that's kind of a beautiful interconnectedness of like, as opposed to your script, your spec where you're like in the platonic ideal world, what film will this be? Or it's like, Nope. Dave Acosta has <laughs> got to eat. Got to give him a page to draw today. <laughs> you know? Type monkey type. Yeah. Type monkey type, exactly. Word. Well, it feels like we're uh, kind of winding down here. Why don't we uh, go around the wheel and uh, remind us who you are and uh, let us know what you have to plug and where to find you and all that good noise. Uh, uh, sell us your wares. Uh, Amanda, go ahead. All right. I'm Amanda Dybert. I'm always on Twitter, at Amanda Dybert, literally 24-7. This is true. David can attest to this. Um, right now, I have two... Uh, horror comic anthologies that just came out this month. DC's The Doomed and the Damned, where I did a Wonder Woman and Raven team up, and John Carpenter's Tales for a Halloween Night, which I do with my wife every year. Um, I also have, on the flip side of that, um, DC Superhero Girls Weird Science, which is a uh, middle grade um, graphic novel that's out, and that's pretty much it. Nice. Yeah, and I'm David Boer again. Um, my uh, creator on book right now is Canto from IDW, All Ages. We just started the second story arc. You can find me on Twitter at, at David Boer, on Instagram at, at David M. Boer, and you can find Canto and at Canto Comic on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, and go ahead and catch up. We've got some really exciting plans moving forward and maybe even some fun announcements so stay tuned nice. and it's shocking it's shocking that uh that, that i've waited until now to say it but canto is uh you know it's one of my favorite books of the last five years and if you follow me on twitter or social media or anything like that i'm always screaming about how great it is so uh uh, yeah, great to have you on. Mm -hmm. Always great to have you on. Uh, I mean, the funny thing is, uh, Boor and I have actually, we've never met in person. We kind of met on Twitter, uh, I think fighting about a, <laughs> a, a poll on Twitter. We were both trying to win a poll. Um, <laughs> and, and came out and we just pitted all of our fans against each other. I remember. <laughs> yeah, it started out as kind of like a 90s uh, rap battle, but ended up with us loving, uh, yeah, you know, and hugging yeah. each other. <laughs> and, beco and becoming and becoming close friends. And I think there were times where we were supposed to be at the same con. I think when I went to Baltimore for the Ringos, you were supposed to be there, but you had to pull out for whatever reason. 
Um, and uh, so we have we have been threatening to get together for a uh, uh, you know what feels like years now. Uh, circumstance has always uh, prevented it, and now we have this goddamn pandemic. And so uh, anyway, cancel rules. Orchestrated a whole pandemic to avoid getting together. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how I do it. But, but Canto rules. Go by Canto. Uh, I love Canto. Uh, uh, do it up, uh, Avaloni. I uh, I stepped on you. Sorry, man. No problem. Uh, I'm David Avaloni. Freelance dot com has got the links to all of the things. I I am lucky to have an unusual name in the age of Google, so I'm incredibly easy to find. Uh, first nine pages of Google results are about me. On page 10, you meet Lieutenant David Avalone, who seems like a lovely fellow, who is a, a army ranger and a lawyer. Seems like a really great yeah, guy. Wow. But nine great pages of Google before that will be me and my books and my ridiculous utterances. And uh, I have a Kickstarter that might be coming out the day that this episode drops. Uh, Elvira, the Omega Ma'am. Ooh. A COVID Nicely satire uh, in which Elvira uh, overdoses on hairspray, goes into a coma, and when she wakes up, uh, Los Angeles is overrun by orange-skinned zombies who have ingested a cleaning product to ward off the COVID, and it turned them into zombies. Just complete science fiction, not inspired by oh, anything no. that you might uh, see in the news. <laughs> uh, and I'm also part of a horror anthology called Nightmare Theater. Um, and that includes a piece called German Chocolate, which is a dream project of mine I've been trying to do for 20 years. Um, very quickly, my dad, I love telling people this, my dad was a World War II veteran and a novelist. And so when I was a little kid, he chose to tell me the fairy tales, all of the classic fairy tales, as World War II combat stories involving himself. So, like, Little Red Riding Hood ends, instead of the hunters, it's my father's reconnaissance squad who killed the wolf at the end. Oh uh, because it's the Black Forest. My father very wisely understood that all those stories take place in the Black Forest in Germany, so why not 1945? So German chocolate is the Hansel and Gretel. It's Hansel and Gretel meets Saving Private Ryan, which I think everyone will enjoy. Uh, and uh, that's what I've got coming out soon. Ryland Grant, ladies and gentlemen. So, I am Ryland Grant. It is, uh, I am on all uh, uh, social media uh, at Ryland Grant. If you're watching on one of our three video channels uh, on YouTube, you can see it. Um, if you are listening, uh, it is R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just kind of threw some letters together and uh, saddled me with it. So uh, not easy to find, not easy to comprehend. Um, you can get my books, uh, Banjax and Aberrants, uh, in fine comic shops or uh, on Comixology, Amazon, the whole nine yards. Uh, the Jump, uh, my last book, is still available uh, via Backerkit at uh, thejump.backerkit.com if you want a copy of that. Uh, that was a good one. Uh, but like Avalone, I am re-wading into the Kickstarter waters very soon. Um, when this drops, I think we will be um, a little under a week away uh, from the Peacekeepers uh, launching, which is my uh, sort of love letter to um, uh, quirky and decidedly uh, 
dark and twisted uh, crime dramas. If you like uh, Fargo, No Country for Old Men. If you like uh, case of season police dramas like The Wire or True Detective. If you love Elmore Leonard novels. If uh, you love uh, uh, comic books like Criminal or 100 Bullets, uh, you are going to dig the hell out of this one. Um, you can check that out right now at uh, uh, bit.ly backslash the peacekeepers. Um, you can sign up for uh, launch notifications and it will go live on October 19th. So make sure that you are, uh, you know, one of the first to uh, grab your copy of that. Um, as far as the podcast is concerned, thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for watching. Again, if you're watching on one of our three YouTube channels, uh, make sure to smash that like button. Uh, make sure to subscribe. Make sure to tell your friends if you are listening on iTunes or uh, Spotify or one of the other fine purveyors of ear crack. Um, subscribe, give us a five-star review, grab uh, uh, your friend's phone and subscribe them. Uh, the whole nine yards, uh, you know, is sort of live and die based on uh, your participation and your subscription and your uh, your, your thoughtful reviews. Um, uh, we will be back next week, of course, with, uh, with more fun, with more craziness, with more uh, stories of stabbings and Seinfeld <laughs> uh, uh, references and in the whole nine yards. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, other David. Um, thank you, Amanda. Um, yes, we'll see thanks you so much, week. guys. Thanks for being thank on the you. show. Thank you. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.